You're listening to the Boss Business of Surgery series, episode 90. Today, I talk with Dr. Audrey Bauer. She is a bariatric surgeon who was suddenly laid off, and her life never looked the same. But wait till you hear what she's doing now. And if you're in a job and you're worried about being laid off or think you need to make a change, head to BossSurgery.com to hear about the 90-day notice. We start on Tuesday, July 25th. This is a program where I paired with Amanda Hill. She is a healthcare lawyer with decades of experience, and we help you transition from one job to the next without making the same mistakes. Welcome surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we needed to learn to be a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Vertries. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you'll learn those lessons not taught in residency. Welcome back. I've been so excited about this interview for several weeks because we've had this on the books for a while. I've known Dr. Audrey Bauer for several years now, just online. She's a Navy veteran. She has had quite the career path. And I know a lot of people have questions about what jobs to go to. What are some of the pitfalls? What are some of the problems? What if I end up at a job with a difficult situation? And she's basically done all of those. (laughs) Repeatedly. I'm really excited to hear her story and her perspective, because I think that she is like the epitome of courage and not being discouraged and trying different things and not letting one path end and just finding a different path and really succeeding despite all the obstacles that have been thrown in her way. So she's got a great story and I can't wait for you all to hear it. Thanks, Amy. First, tell us a little bit about yourself, Dr. I am 54 years old. I grew up in Pennsylvania in poverty. I'm the first person in my family to go to college and the only physician in my family. And so my pathway was a little bit strange. I was a non-traditional student. I worked for seven years after college as a chemist in laboratories before I went to med school. And I got married straight out of college. So when I went to, to med school, I was married for seven years and geographically separated so that I could go to medical school because he was in the Air Force. But I got a Navy scholarship and ended up joining the Navy for my residency and then my commitment to the Navy afterwards. Take us through your Navy career. What were some of the things that stood out for you in the Navy? What were some of the lessons you learned and things you had to overcome? Well, I think one of the challenges for me, because I trained at Bethesda Naval Hospital, was the fact that it was during the war and Fallujah and all of these catastrophic injuries came to us, all the Marines. Um, And so that was really difficult because, of course, when I signed up four years earlier, there was no war and no one had any idea when was going to be starting. So that was a surprise. I ended up doing a lot more trauma than I expected to, which is a good thing and a bad thing. It's pretty upsetting to see all these 19-year-old guys blown to bits. But I really do feel like it was a great education, both trauma and regular general surgery. It was also kind of a strange time because at that point in time in Bethesda, there was not a single female attending in the general surgery department. We had one female plastic surgeon who was very unhappy that she had to help residents and train us. And she was not somebody I would have chosen for a mentor. 
And then we had some amazing female urologists, including Dr. Christine Sears. And without them, I don't know that I would have survived. <laughs> they really were great. And I had some really great residents. So half the residents in my program were female. And so I had the opportunity to work with some really great female physicians, even though they were still trainees. Yes. And I think that is the key, right? You just find allies wherever you can. And they may be in unexpected places. I know that when I felt isolated, when we started bringing some of the students in, that's when I started actually feeling excited about the job again, too. I mean, because they're excited about everything. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I, for the most part, the male attendings, they were old school. They were the guys with the stay-at-home wives and no personal responsibility for anything going on at home and really couldn't understand why I needed to go pump or (laughs) wanted to get home before my kid fell asleep for the seventh night in a row or wanted to be home for Christmas. That For them, that was just a non-issue and not on their radar and very difficult for them to understand. Yeah. What got you through that time frame? That's a great question. I think there were definitely dark periods. I had my first child at the end of my second year and starting my third year, I was not in a good place. I actually at one point in time considered just quitting, but I had a military commitment. And so that helped keep me in place. And then beyond that point, things got better with regard to the people that I was dealing with attending wise. There's a little bit of a turnover year to year in the department. And I had some really good mentors, a couple of really great laparoscopic surgeons who were younger, a little bit more mentally dynamic when it came to understanding that we have a life outside of work. And then we also rotate out for our trauma rotations locally for for the Navy. And so I got to go to some different hospitals, meet some different physicians. And I really felt like that was a nice break from the Navy environment for a year. But overall, I think probably one of the biggest things was my fellow residents. Right. And I think a lot of times we take for granted the supportive environment that we have around. And we only notice it when we're not in one. Right. (laughs) I think especially like going from one place to another, if we don't have a supportive environment, we still have the possibility of tapping in remotely to different groups and all too. We also take for granted that now because it's here. But back in the time when you're going through all that, you're only seeing what you're seeing. And that can be so intimidating, just like you said. Yeah. And there was no real space in my life to build a village. It wasn't where I was from. I didn't really know other people outside of my program. So you really end up sort of, that is your be all and end all. If you hopefully you get along great with your co-residents and you can at least have friends, even though they're work people, because otherwise there's really no opportunity to connect with other people. Right. So take us through after the Navy, tell us about your first job. Yeah. So I went into the Navy. I did my training at Bethesda. I went to the desert for a year as an attending in California. And then I went to fellowship at a civilian hospital, Geisinger up in Pennsylvania. And I did my MIS and bariatrics fellowship and then went back to the Navy at Portsmouth. And I did four years at Portsmouth. And then that was the end of my obligated service. 
And honestly, there are many days when I wish that I had not gotten out at that point, but my ex-husband was Air Force and he was in a position where we had spent a fair amount of time geographically separated. We were geographically separated while I was in med school. And then again, while I was in fellowship. So that really was difficult. And at the beginning of fellowship, right before fellowship started, I had my second child. So I was in the backwoods of Pennsylvania with a toddler and an infant and no husband (laughs) and a no pair, thank God. So that really, we got to the point where my kids were getting old enough to recognize that I wasn't around. I got deployed twice in the final two years of my time in the Navy and the ops tempo at that time was pretty rapid. It was pretty much six months every two years. And my kids were really starting to protest. So I got out and I was very fortunate to get a job as a bariatric attending with Kaiser Permanente here in Colorado. And it was, I will be perfectly honest, a dream job. It was well compensated. There was profit sharing. There was ownership. After a period of two years, there was a 401k, great health benefits. I had an amazing team, medical bariatricians and a PA and nurse practitioners and like five dietitians. It was really the unicorn of bariatric programs. We were doing like 250, 300 procedures a piece each year. We were very busy and I absolutely loved it. But the timing was interesting because at the same time, that was when the Affordable Care Act was being initiated. And Kaiser here in Colorado is not like Kaiser in California. It's not an HMO. It's almost all deductible plans. And so our payer mix got very skewed during that transition, way too much coming from Medicaid and from the marketplace, not enough coming from commercial contracts. And we struggled financially as an organization for those five years. And at the conclusion of it, they decided that the best way to improve their bottom line was to divest themselves of surgeons who made a lot of money. (laughs) And my department got to be the first. So they decided to outsource bariatrics. And my partner, John, and I got laid off very surprisingly in the middle of 2019. Probably 2019 is maybe the first time a lot of people were noticing the possibilities of layoffs. Because as physicians and surgeons, especially like highly skilled, and we've worked all this way, the idea of being laid off, I don't think it has occurred to any of us before that time frame. Now it's more often than you would imagine. But by then in 2019, I can only imagine how jarring that was. Take us through what that was like. Well, I got a phone call on a Tuesday afternoon while I was in clinic. And it was my my direct manager who was a wonderful OBGYN. And she said, Hey, tomorrow, can you come to my office? And I, the first thing I thought was, Oh God, who did I piss off? <laughs> that's like a likely being, scenario. They're getting laid off. That's for sure. Right. right. You, you, it's like being called to the principal's office. And I, and I said, is everything okay? And she said, I, I don't, you know, I can't really talk about it. And I said, is my job safe? Because I thought I'm going to get fired for calls. <laughs> I did yeah. something bad that I'm just not aware of. And, and she's like, I can't really talk about it. So then I was freaking out. 
and I talked to a couple of the other surgeons who worked for Kaiser in the general surgery department who I knew had gotten into trouble previously for various things. And the advice I was given was say nothing, do nothing, hire a lawyer. So the next day I go in and when I get there, it's, you know, my direct boss, Rory, and the, I guess he was the CMO at the time, although he was going out and a woman from HR with a folder with my separation package, which by the way, was absolutely atrocious and completely unreasonable. And basically they told me I, within 60 days, my job would be gone. And I had two kids and I had bought a very pricey house when I moved to Denver to take this job. And I had just gone through a very expensive divorce and had an ex-husband who didn't work and was collecting alimony. And so all of a sudden here I was with, you know, 4,500 bucks of alimony a month, a $4,500 mortgage, two kids and no job and eight weeks of severance. Wow. So I think a lot of us don't really realize that the math of the world, you know, like we think that we're highly skilled, obviously we are. And when we get these highly compensated jobs in the business world, people see this all the time. The first person to go is the most expensive person. Typically it's going to be like the middle management or higher up that people are trying to save money. But if you think that surgeons are immune, we're actually not. It's We're subject to economic forces too. And in fact, the more money we make, the more risk we are. Yeah. Well, and I think, honestly, I believe that when my job went away, their plan was not just me and John. I think their plan was to take to target highly expensive small departments and outsource that work. And I actually got a phone call from one of the dermatopathologists who said to me, this happened to you. There are only two of us. We make a lot of money. What do you think? And I said, I don't know what to tell you, but I would start looking now. And I honestly think that the only reason they didn't continue to do that was because there was so much outrage when the other physicians at Colorado Permanente Medical Group heard that they had laid us off, that they did not proceed with that plan because they had already gotten rid of 60 or 70% of the pharmacists. They had already gotten rid of 45% of the levels in the organization. They were just divesting themselves of all their expenses. In Colorado, we contract our hospital. We don't own our own hospital at Kaiser. And so they basically gave that work to the hospital without any thought to include us in the contract and say, you can have the work, but you got to take our two surgeons for the first year. And if after that, if it doesn't work out for you, great. But for one year, you know, give them a try because the hospital didn't have their own bariatric program. We were it. So if they were going to take the work, they needed surgeons. And so that was the first thing I tried to do was to get one of those jobs, but they had already hired somebody because they knew this was coming, but we didn't. And so by the time I got hold of anybody of any importance who could help me, the positions were filled and that was that. And here in Colorado, in Denver, especially in Denver proper, 
it is a pretty cutthroat environment, not just for bariatrics, but for most subspecialties. Unless you have the money to open up a shop, hang up your own shingle and work on your own, getting hired as a bariatric surgeon is very difficult. I talked to a bunch of the bariatric surgeons. It's a small community. We all know each other and nobody was, you know, one surgeon, she wasn't ready for a partner. Another surgeon said, well, if you can bring your Kaiser patients, then I'll take you. I was like, I can't bring my Kaiser patients. They're Kaiser patients. There's no way to bring them. And a couple of hospitals offered to take my business if I wanted to start my own practice. But as I said, I was not in a financial position to go without a paycheck and go through that buildup for however many months or years it would take to be profitable. And so at that point, I was on unemployment, which is in Colorado, maxes out at around 600 bucks a week, pretty big pay cut. And I started looking at general surgery jobs because I thought, okay, I'll just go back to general surgery. And this is the warning shot for everybody out there who subspecializes from general surgery. When it comes time to look for a general surgery job, you will be turned away because you haven't done general surgery for however many years. I had been doing mostly pretty much pure bariatrics for five years with the occasional laparoscopic gastrectomy and things like that. People would say, well, we can't credential you. You haven't done general surgery call. And it's like, I've taken out gallbladders in the course of doing bariatrics. I know how to do that. Bariatrics involves, you know, rerouting the intestines. I know how to do anastomoses and I do gastric surgery daily. And I think I can still remember how to take out an appendix, but I went to the Navy reserves. They wouldn't credential me. I talked to a hospital down South here. They wanted somebody with more breast experience and I hadn't done any breast in five years, although I kept on top of, kept abreast of the, the clinical changes as far as treatment. I heard what you did there. <laughs> <laughs> but for the most part, it basically put me in a position where I was having a really hard time finding a job. And I had interviewed at Kaiser out in California, both South and North. And then I interviewed with Kaiser in Atlanta and they offered me a job. And that was in January of 2020. So you might be seeing where this is going because I did everything that I needed to do. Could your luck get any worse? I'm just curious. (laughs) Oh yeah, it does. Keep going. I flew out there. I get the interview in January. They let me know that they like me to come out there. And I had told them during the interview process, like I've had trouble getting people to credential me because of not doing bariatrics. And they assured me it was going to be fine, that my lack of general surgery call wasn't going to be a barrier. And they work at Emory. They also don't have their own hospital. So they use Emory. And I had gotten a couple phone calls during the credentialing process to discuss credentialing me. And oddly enough, the guy who called me from the credentialing committee was one of their bariatric surgeons. So, I mean, he obviously knows what goes into being a bariatric surgeon, but I had my stuff packed up and, you know, shipped out there and I got in the car and I actually called them the Friday before I left to go to drive to Atlanta and left a message and didn't hear anything back. So I get in the car, took my teenager with me, 
drive cross country, get as far as Nashville and four o'clock in the afternoon, the morning, the day before I'm supposed to go in and fill out my I-9 and all the paperwork, I get a phone call telling me the job is no longer available. They basically, they said that they weren't able to get me credentialed. And of course that was May the 4th, 2020. So COVID was in full swing and everybody had shut down their ORs at that point. And my response was why, if there were problems with credentialing, which I warned you about in the interview, why was I not contacted and told this? Why was I not even you know, contacted Friday before I drove two thirds of the way across the country? And they just kind of shrugged. Because you had a contract, right? Well, Kaiser is weird. They give you like a offer letter. Mm-hmm. But there's no like contract. Well, the, even with a contract, typically there's going to be a stipulation saying that you must be credentialed. And and the offer, the offer letter did say that. I've seen this actually a number of times now in talking to people that this is not a unique situation. Someone will promise us something. It'll go along the, the chains that we're not even aware of, typically credentialing being one of them. It makes sense that the person being a bariatric surgeon is like, of course you could do all these things. But the decisions are not ours. We as physicians gave up decisions long ago, and you're the unfortunate recipient of what happens when we have lost control of the physician being a part of the decision-making process. Absolutely. So this is what I've heard, too, is where someone even gets a contract but there's something within the contract that we're not even aware is not even underway. Or you can warn them and say, but I told you. But all it takes is one person along the way to create a break in the system. So the more that we know about how the system works, fair or unfair, or whatever, as long as we know, but it's all these things that we don't know that is the, the downfall of all this. So. Right. Well, and when I when I saw that line in there about needing to be credentialed, I'm thinking, okay, like if I get a DUI or you know I lose my license or my DEA number or something, I do something that precipitates me not being able to be credentialed. I could see that. Yeah, but but when they said, oh well, it's because you're you know bariatric surgeon, you haven't done general surgery. My answer to Kaiser was, okay, then put me on a plan of supervision six months, a year, I'll work with your surgeons. And they were like, well, no, we're not going to do that. If you can find somebody locally to do that for you and get credentialed at Emory, we'll reconsider you. Hmm. And I will tell you, when that happens, you feel alone. You feel like you're the only person on the planet that this has ever happened to. And there I am, my kids asleep next to me while I'm having this conversation in Nashville. And when he woke up, I said to him, okay, here's the deal. We're going to stay the night in Nashville because it's already five o'clock. And then I'm going to turn around and we're going to drive back because I don't have this job. And he said to me, mom, you're like a swan, beautiful and angry. I was like, oh my God, I don't think I've ever been told anything more appropriate. <laughs> it's it's so funny how kids are so astute. <laughs> yeah. And I was angry. I didn't feel very beautiful at the moment, but he made me feel better about it. <laughs> angry. That's amazing. Wait, so then what happened? So I drove back to Denver. I had just vacated because my house had been sold a couple months earlier. And so I was in this ratty little apartment. 
And I had just vacated that. So I called the manager and I said, hey, have you given my apartment away yet? And he was like, no, your keys are still on the counter. I'm like, okay, I'm coming back. And so I moved back and I started again looking for work. And it was very fortunate, although fortune is in in hindsight, that view maybe changes a little bit, but I was very fortunate that I had a former resident um, that I had a good relationship with. I was the attending, she was a resident and she had joined a, a group in, in the Florida panhandle. And she said, Hey, we're looking for a surgeon. Why don't you come down and join us? And so it was a general surgery job, pretty much mainly doing trauma and call. They had their own group and they were kind of trying to maneuver to take away trauma from the hospital surgeons. The the group that was running it was all hospital surgeons. And so I was their first foray into getting those spots kind of pulled away from the surgical group that worked for the hospital. I did not know at the time that the way they got my position was getting the hospital to fire one of those surgeons without any notice. Like literally the day that I started, they called him into the office and fired him. And needless to say, like a job you want, huh? Yeah. Well, so then I'm there working with his former partners who now are like, who the hell are you and why are you here? And it's your fault. He got fired. And I was just like, I didn't know about any of this. I just showed up to work. And so that was a little bit dicey, but the group that I went to work with had bariatrics. They had a very brisk at the time, general surgery practice. And the understanding that I had was that I would start developing an elective practice and hopefully start once things picked up after COVID died down, I would be able to do some primary bariatrics and work into their call schedule. There was two of them and they were very excited about the thought of having somebody else take call with them. But I ended up being there for a year. It became pretty apparent to me fairly early on that the bariatric surgeons, while they would love me to take call with them, had no intention of giving me any of their elective bariatric work ever. And the procedures and elective stuff from the office, there were surgeons there who were there before me, but newer and who were not generating enough volume. And so all of that unassigned elective work was getting sent to them and none of it to me. And so I was really just doing and trauma call. And I would do six. Yeah. I did six calls a month for 24 hours. And then in between, if the partners needed somebody to assist, I would go and scrub and do cases with them. And it was a busy trauma service. I mean, there were some days when I really got my butt handed to me, especially like Thursday, Friday, Saturday. But the other sort of conundrum was the culture of the practice. I was only the second female surgeon in the group. My former resident was the other. And it was very much an old boys club. There was a lot of misogyny, a lot of homophobia, some racism. And when the other female surgeon made noise, 
they kind of ignored her, but didn't do anything about it because she was a rainmaker. She was doing a ton of breast and nobody else, then the patients didn't want anybody else. They wanted her. And she was making a lot of money for the practice. And what I quickly learned over the course of my time there was that if you make enough money in this practice, you can do whatever the hell you want. And if you don't, good luck. And so I was there for a year. When I had my one-year review, the tone was pretty much, you're going to be doing trauma and that's it. I had had to spend a week with one of the bariatric surgeons because his PA was out of town. So they basically made me his glorified PA for a week. And I mentioned the fact that he made a racist comment about the new vascular surgeon and he was making sexual comments to the scrub and the nurse. And that was basically glossed over, but I think it precipitated what ended up being my firing. And the whole milieu around the firing was very odd. I had a consult that I got that I was given the wrong room number. I went to the room in question and the patient who was in that room also needed the same thing I was consulted for. Really very weird coincidence, but I was like, I didn't know it was the wrong room. And this guy needed the procedure I was being consulted for. So I talked to him and his family and they agreed to it. And then I did the case. And when it came to light that this patient was not the original patient I was consulted to see, they said it was some sort of violation of insurance rules and they fired me. Hmm. Sounds like waiting for a reason anyway. Oh, absolutely. I mean, as soon as it happened and I started hearing about it from the up above, I was like, called my fiance and I was like, I'm going to lose my job today. He was like, what are you talking about? I'm like, this is not going well. I'm getting phone calls and I'm going to lose my job. And sure enough, that was it. I got, (laughs) so he's, so the, the guy who was sort of the administrative partner says, come to the office tomorrow so we can talk. I go to the office. He's not there. He fires me over the speaker phone. And it's just like, what you did was unacceptable, blah, 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 blah. And at that point, I need a job. Yeah, I needed a job. Did I want to work with him? No, I didn't really want to be with that group anymore. I tried because they had just lost another surgeon from the hospital surgical group. I called them and I talked to the surgeon who was in charge of the trauma service. And we had a, by that point, we had really developed a fairly collegial relationship. And I said, hey, I'm not with the surgery group anymore, but I would be happy to work with you. And he was like, yeah, okay, here's who you call. And I called and we talked and I, there was never any fallout from my supposed erroneous consult. Nothing ever came of it, but, and they were happy to say, okay, yeah, well, we can start you out as locums or per diem. And then a week later, I called and I'm like, I just want to know where this is at because I got to buy malpractice insurance. And they're like, no, the, the other group has said that they wouldn't be comfortable if you were here. Hmm. So I basically got blacklisted. And of course I had moved there. I'd bought a house. I had started renovating it. So it was like, it's still half under construction, but all of a sudden I was unemployed again. Hmm. It was like, holy smoke, really? 
<laughs> looking back, what were some of the things that stood out for you? Like, was there something that should have, like looking back and say, oh, I see it now. Well, one of the things that I didn't know about that, I don't know if I have, I don't know if I would have had the ability to find this information out, even if I had tried, was I was not the first surgeon that they tried to integrate. I was like the third or fourth. Mm. And they had had unsuccessful relationships with surgeon after surgeon after surgeon. And of course, when you talk to the group, it was always the surgeon's fault. It was something they were doing. It was something they weren't doing. It was their incompetence. There was a surgeon who had been there, a female surgeon prior to me, and they just acted like she was completely incompetent. But then when you talk to the people in the hospital who were not part of the group and who had worked with these surgeons, that really was not what came across. It was just whoever it was, they were not going along to get along. Hmm. And, the, and the relationship was te- severed. So, yeah, I guess maybe asking the right question of like, who have you had hired before and, and then right. keeping your ears open outside the group in the area. Because definitely, I think the clues are there, but we don't see them because we're looking for a job. We think everything's going to work out for the best. We think everyone's going to be reasonable. <laughs> right. And for me, I'll be honest, like they, because they run that town, they had no trouble getting me credentialed. And so when you say, fortunately, me getting this job, to some degree, it really was because it gave me a year of doing trauma and general surgery that then enabled me to get credentialed other places. Ah. So without that, I would not have had the additional opportunities going forward. I would have still been stuck. In addition, the other thing that we always need to keep in mind is that if you don't operate for two years, you're screwed. Yeah. Because you need two years logs in order to get credentialed. And without it, you lose the ability to be privileged. Mm-hmm. And so I was at 18 months. And I was like, I have got to get my tail back in the operating room. And I was doing locums here and there. But you're on a locums assignment for 10 days and you do like a gallbladder or an appy or a butt pus drainage. It's not enough volume to fill out a case log. So for me, what did do those two things is it reset my clock and it gave me general surgery time under my belt that allowed me to apply to other things going forward. Yes. And I think your point, like this, this practice had a great deal of power. So it's great if it's on your side. Right. Exactly. I mean, in retrospect, I'm grateful that things worked out the way they did, even though not grateful how they got there. Yes. It was a shock to the system. I was really, I had moved. I left my kids behind because they didn't want to move. I had my fiance. So he's currently my fiance, but when I moved to Florida, we had only been dating three months (laughs) and, and we were getting along great, but we had to figure out how we were going to like do this long distance thing. And I was flying him back and forth to Florida. And so I, I sacrificed a lot to take this job. And also I'm 50 years old and I'm doing 24 hour call and I'm up all night operating and having been a bariatric surgeon where I had residents and really didn't have to be up at night. It was a pretty big shock to the system. Yeah. So I know you were doing some locums. How did the locums work out for you? Like what were some of the challenges and some of the benefits and all the things? 
So I enjoyed locums to the extent that I'm, I love to travel. Some people don't. I love going other places. I had licenses, originally had a license in Colorado, and then I got a license in California when I was interviewing with Kaiser out there. And then obviously in Florida after I got that job. And But I was not licensed in any place I didn't actually want to go to work. <laughs> so that was always my defense. I was like, oh, do you want to go to like, you know, the middle of nowhere, Idaho? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. Then Idaho. Oh, we'll pay for your license. No, I'm good. Thanks. <laughs> so, so my locums jobs were in California. I had a really good experience. These are small hospitals where they have like two or three surgeons total and somebody's grandmother is sick and somebody else had a vacation planned and I just go and cover the beeper, take care of business. I didn't have to see clinic. I didn't have anything elective. I was just taking call. It's a very, depending on the acuity of the hospital, it's a very good lifestyle, but it's not, it's never in a city. There was never anything in Denver. There was never anything in LA, but one of my jobs was in Napa uh, in St. Helena. And it was wonderful. I'm there in the rolling hills of Napa. I couldn't drink anything, but <laughs> once the week was over, I had a girlfriend fly out and we did a winery <laughs> tour. And it was, I mean, that hospital that it was a little Adventist hospital, everybody treated me like gold and it was really wonderful. And when I lost my job in Florida, I called my my locums guy and I said, hey, I know that they had a recurring need. Can you call them and see if they want me back? And he worked for me looking for stuff. They didn't need me at the time, although they have subsequently asked for me back, but now I'm not doing locums. But he did find me a recurring gig in Florida, which ended up being great. I was there two weeks a month week on week off they let me pick which weeks i wanted to be there and it paid decently but as with all locum gigs a lot of times that comes to an end when they hire a permanent surgeon so a lot of people don't realize that like locums is great but they actually ultimately want someone to work there and right so, yeah the you're really subject to where they want you when they want you and and all the things Right. And I will tell you that my tenure there ended poorly in that I, I got along great with the other surgeons. I had a great relationship with two small hospitals, both of them associated with the university. And the surgeons that were there were really great people. And I felt like I could partner with them well. They were not adverse to the idea of taking over my patients when I was leaving town. And I felt like I had a great rapport with them. But the chief medical officer was also a surgeon and he definitely was not my fan. I think he, I mean, I hate to chalk it up to sexism or misogyny, but I, you know, seriously think that that may have been part of it. When I did things, he would call me and basically take this sort of attitude of like, little girl, what are you doing? Then, so one good example, we're in the throes of COVID it's the Delta variant now. People are sick as snot. Patient comes in with an uncomplicated appendicitis, young guy, healthy, not clinically ill. And I said, okay, I'm going to put you on antibiotics. And we're going to get this, this infection taken care of because you're COVID positive and 
A, I'm not going to stick a tube down your throat and drive it into your lungs. You're not sick right now. B, I'm not going to expose my anesthesia staff to having to intubate you with your COVID. And C, I'm not going to expose myself in an aerating procedure, expose myself to COVID. And, and there's evidence to say it's okay. Right. And I had the, the study, the, the guidelines from the American College of Surgeons and the American Society of Anesthesiologists saying, here's the guidelines for who you do and who you don't operate on. And so I guess this, this guy got upset because the ER told him he was going to have surgery. Of course, thank you very much. And then I said no. And so the CMO heard about it and he called me and berated me. And I said, if you want me to send you the paper and that, you can get a study to say anything you want. Like, no, not really. So, you know, that was sort of a typical conversation that he and I had. But at the end of my time, they had hired two, two new surgeons and one of their old surgeons had come back. And I knew I was going to be finishing up at the end of September. I was aware of that. But prior, just like in July, I had a patient who came in with a very complicated perforated appendicitis with like an 18 centimeter phlegmon. It was not a liquid abscess. It wasn't drainable percutaneously. I took the guy to the OR. I did the surgery. And it turned out that there were minor complications that I won't get into now because it's kind of a legal thing at this point. But he used that to cut my contract short by a week. And here's the other thing everybody needs to understand about locums. You know, there's like a drop dead date. You have to cancel within like 30 or 60 days. So read the contract because if you don't, you owe the hospital and the, and the locums agency money. But if they cancel on you, even though the contract says they owe you money, there's no way to recover it wow. because the contract says that the company, the, the hospital has to cancel within, you know, before 30 days or they owe Barton money or they owe comp health money and comp health or Barton has to cancel with you whenever they want. So it's, it's in their best interest not to fight with the client. So they're not going to like go after them with lawyers to get the, you know, $15,000 I'm owed. And so I basically lost that week of work with no notice. I had already bought a plane ticket, already rented a car, already had a room in the hotel. And there was just no consequence to them at all. And then in addition to that, prior to that, I had asked them, the, the surgeons at that facility, including the CMO, because he was my direct supervisor to fill out paperwork for me to go back in the Navy. And he completely torpedoed me in this paperwork. And of course, at that point, I have no recourse. I can't do anything about it. And so my bid to go back into the Navy reserves was completely tanked. Goodness. So then what happened? Good grief. <laughs> fortunately, <laughs> during all guess. of this, yeah, it, fortunately, during all of this, these nine months, I had, I was on an, an aesthetics Facebook group. And this gentleman, Dr. Parango, came on, left a posting that said, Hey, you know, we're looking for hair transplant surgeons in Denver. And I was like, Denver? I could go be with my kids, be with my fiance. And so I contacted him. And it turned out that he was the surgeon in the Chicago office for Bosley. 
And I ended up interviewing with him and then interviewing with the CMO, Dr. Washenik. And then eventually they flew me out to California and I interviewed in Beverly Hills with the doctor there, Dr. Deutsch. And it seemed like a good fit. Although I'll tell you, it's really scary leaving real surgery practice because you think to yourself, I'm going to, I'm going to make this step. And I don't know that there's any going back from it. But if you, again, if I'm here in the office doing these procedures, I'm not going to be credentialable. I'm not going to be able to do general surgery call. And of course, this model is different than anything I've ever done. I was Navy. I was Kaiser. I was employed with a salary. This is a contract position. There's no benefits. There's no 401k, no health care. There's no guarantee. I mean, there's a guarantee, but it's, I can't even tell you how useless it is, but it's pure eat what you kill. And (laughs) And so that's very disquieting for somebody who has never been in that position before and is not a spring chicken. And has financial responsibilities and has been variously unemployed over the past several years and has debts now because of that. But in the end, I I felt like the group of people at Bosley was really great. I felt like the way they treated each other was really great. And so I took the position and in December, no, October, I went to Beverly Hills for three months and trained and became a hair transplant surgeon. And so now I don't work holidays. I don't work weekends. I don't get called at night. I don't ever have to do anything at night. When I went off, I take off because I am my own boss. Just came back from 10 days in Florida and going again in September. And at this point, I'm taking off a week like every other month. I plan to I'm not sure up. I want to hear anymore. I'm so <laughs> jealous. <laughs> and I'm lucky because, because of my military history and the fact that I was married to my ex-husband for so long, I retain his medical benefits. So I don't have to worry about medical insurance. And I had already started a solo 401k, so I'm still saving for retirement. Amazing. And so this all I've the only dicey part about it is I came into the Denver office after they had been without a surgeon, a steady surgeon for over two years. And so they were bringing in people a couple of weeks a year to keep the practice up and running. But, you know, they had not had a single surgeon running the office. And so we had, we normally the staffing here is eight medical assistants. We had two and they were bringing in travelers and Bosley, I will tell you, is great about that. I mean, they would just send me six MAs from across the country for the week. And so now we're, we had already, they had already started planning on moving into a new office. In fact, things are a wreck here because we're moving Friday into a really nice new building. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it'll increase my capacity by an additional 50%, which I'm very much looking forward to that. But it's really a good life. Mm-hmm. What would you go back and tell your yourself, the person who's like going through all these trials, like knowing what you know now, what would you go back and tell yourself? Wow. I mean, there's so many points in there, but probably the most important thing is it's going to be okay. 
don't panic, don't fall apart. Everything is going to be okay. And it's funny because I'm a surgeon, right? So the first thing is that when everything's going to hell in a handbasket, the patient's spurting blood everywhere, there's things flying, you take a deep breath and you compartmentalize it and you do what needs to be done. And externally, I've done that all along, but inside, it's been hard. It's been really hard. And everybody around me is like, oh, you're handling this with such grace and you're just so great and you're so, and I'm like, if you could see my insides, you would not be saying that. Yes, that's, you're absolutely right. The one thing that we've learned that's a transferable skill is the ability to compartmentalize pain. Yeah, and it comes in handy a lot of places, but certainly when it comes to getting people to help you, getting sympathy, getting people to take your burden for some degree, it's, you do it to your own detriment. You know, it, being hyper-competent and everybody thinks, oh, she's got this, she's got this, she's got this. Well, sometimes I don't want to have it. Yes. Sometimes I want you to take it. Yes. And I was married for 26 years to a man who was more than happy to give it all to me. And when I left that relationship, that was one of the things that I promised myself is I would stop not asking for help. I would stop telling people, oh, no, no, it's okay. You don't have to help me. And I would start accepting the assistance and the kindness of others because everybody tries, my friends, my relatives. And I was so used to saying, no, I got this. No, I got this. And so I've stopped doing that for the most part. I still catch myself occasionally, but it's a very old habit, hard to break. And I was raised in an environment where my dad was like, my dad's significantly older than me. And he was raised on a farm and you just pull up your bootstraps and do what needs to be done. And my mother was not present and just emotionally not available. And so I've kind of had to raise myself to a large degree. And so you just get used to being the one who does everything and you don't realize it until you are just mired under this huge rock of things that you're not doing yourself any favors. Yes. Gosh, you know, the ability to ask for help is, it doesn't seem like it'd be so hard, but of course it is. Terrible. And I've been very fortunate. My, my fiance and I've been together about three years and he is just like me, which that is, a, I mean, when you're somebody who does everything and, and is cool with like taking it all on 99% of the people you end up with are more than happy to just take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. so when you hook up with somebody who's also like that, it's a recipe for fantasticness mm -hmm. because I just worry about taking care of him. And he just worries about taking care of me. And all of a sudden my life is so much easier and so much better. Yes. Um, and, and my kids are older. My kids are 15 and almost 19 and they are wonderful human beings. They are generous and kind and funny and smart. And I'm way better parent to young adults than I ever was to littles. <laughs> and I think they like me. They seem to, but you know, life is just so much better at this point. And I, you know, I don't see myself working past probably 62, 65. And I feel like this is like the perfect slide into home plate. 
Now, a lot of people have the same concerns that you mentioned. It's like, oh no, what if I can't go back? And what would you tell that part of yourself that had those concerns now that you have sort of (laughs) taken a different path? So what I realized is that even if I could go back to general surgery, I don't think I want to. Even if this job went away, I think I would find something else to do. This whole business with, for the first time in my 20 plus year career, finally being sued, which we know happens to 85% of us. And just the, the stress of taking care of these people who are just one foot in the grave and one foot on a banana peel. And never being, heard that phrase. <laughs> being up all night and being ex- like when I was a resident, if I was up all night, I slept the following day and I got back on the horse. Now, if I'm up all night, I'm trashed for five days. So this was not built for a 54 year old. And I'm a, I'm a healthy 54 year old, but I'm still feeling it when I have to be up all night. And so at this point in time, honestly, if this job disappeared, and even if this job doesn't disappear, I still have my GI bill. And I would either go back to school and get my certificate as a massage therapist, or I would go back to school and get my master's in licensed clinical social work. And it's interesting because my therapist is an anesthesiologist who got her licensed clinical social work degree. And she's a fantastic therapist for a burned out physician because she knows exactly what I'm going through. So, yeah. What's next for you? What's next for me is moving into my new building, building this practice. It's funny because more people, because they didn't have surgeons all the time. And so my fiance also does digital marketing. And so now he's working with the Bosley Marketing Group, trying to improve the input of patients. But I'm hoping to build this in really best practice for the company. And I hope to spend the rest of my career here enjoying it. And the nice thing about Bosley is the people who retire, if they don't really want to retire, they can become coverage surgeons. So Dr. Suttleson, who used to be in the Beverly Hills office, he's like 70 years old. He's got many, many years of experience. He just bops around the country and covers covers San Francisco when the surgeon's not available there. He goes to Boca when that surgeon's not available, which I wouldn't mind doing that either. Yes. Amazing. Well, it, it's it's funny because I can imagine like if you look back and tell yourself that person is worried about holding on to a job, realizing I don't think I want to hold on to it. <laughs> right. And that is actually, like I said, the Kaiser job was really that was my dream job. And if anybody had said to me along the way afterwards, if you could have that job back, would you take it? I would have said yes in a heartbeat. Yeah. But the other jobs that I've held, not so much. Yeah. You're desperate to draw a paycheck, pay your bills and not crash and burn financially, but it comes at a price. Yeah. Well, your story is so fantastic of just all the things that could potentially happen, these little traps that we don't even know. And like one thing leads to another, just like you said, you get laid off and then it's not so easy to do this. And then this falls through and this falls through. And before you know it, you've gotten too late to do something else. And I mean, it's definitely a lot of things that people are seeing now that the whole market seems to be very unstable. Yeah. 
I mean, I think that we're all having to learn some of these lessons and share these lessons, and at the very least, knowing that you're not alone when something like this happens. Right. So- and I guess the other thing I would tell myself going back to when I first graduated residency is prepare for the future. I was married to a guy who throughout our marriage made the same amount as me and was a very loose spender. And I was careful about, you know, putting money into 401k, TSP, but anything that didn't get socked away and out of his reach was spent. And we were both making, you know, well over $150,000. We were officers. I had allowances. He outranked me. So, but we were, we had no savings beyond retirement savings that I had pulled out before the checks cleared the bank. And, and then when I got my civilian job, it was the same sort of thing. I bought too big of a house and I loved the house, but it was a stupid expenditure. And then I was married to him and he was, and so when the divorce happened, he had retired at 47, perfectly healthy, didn't get a new job. And because I was the wealthy surgeon and he was the disabled vet, his disability is sleep apnea. He got $54,000 a year in alimony, alimony, not child support. And so for five years, I was writing him a check every other week for this money. And that was money that I should have been saving for my own retirement. And he had a pension. He had an an Air Force pension that was, he's drawing like $95,000 a year in pension money. And then my 54 grand. So there were times when he was making a whole lot more than me. So also that's the other thing, ladies, prenup, prenup, prenup. (laughs) I can't emphasize it enough. If you're actually, I'm not a fan of marriage anymore. I'm engaged, but I'm not getting married again because, you know, it was too expensive the first time. And I just can't fathom the idea. I don't think it's going to happen, but in the event. I mean, your entire story is like cautionary tales of anticipating like the things that, that we don't think we should anticipate. I think that we think that we are immune as surgeons. I don't think a lot of us believe that as much anymore, if you're paying attention. Right. So I, I definitely think that planning for the unexpected is is really, I think, a fantastic lesson that your story shows us in resilience. Just amazing. I, I knew your story. I just I only knew half of it. And I, I was impressed by that. So it's, really, well, it's funny because I've seen that meme that says, what what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. No, thanks. I think I'm strong enough. Yeah, yeah <laughs> like, I'm sure that occurred enough. to you more than once. Yeah. <laughs> So like I said, at this point in time, I feel like this is where I'm going to be until I'm ready to retire. But if for some reason fate swoops in again and kicks me in the nuts, I will just reinvent and go forward. I think it's fantastic. I I have no doubt that you would do that exactly that and and come out on top and something even more interesting and and remarkable so so thank you you so much for sharing your story it's so helpful and I I think so many people are going to benefit from hearing this well I think so too and I really think for us the the biggest thing to understand is you are not the first person these things have happened to you are not the only person they're happening to right now and you are not alone Yeah, so important. I think that really, we all need to hear that we are not alone because shame, you know, magnifies when we feel alone. Yeah, absolutely. And it keeps you from moving forward and doing what you need to do. Exactly. Well, your story is going to help so many. Thank you again for coming on. Thanks a lot, Amy. 
For more information about the Boss Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com.